night for a walk. Welcome to Arnie Geddon. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Tony G. And we are here this week with 1984's The Terminator. Now, Tony, this is a momentous film. One of the biggest we're going to tackle in this entire podcast. Uh, what is this story of a young uh, woman who's you know, chased by a killer robot and assisted by a freedom fighter from the future? What does this movie mean to you? Like, How far back does your journey with Terminator go? I mean, this movie to me is... Uh really sets the stage it's one of the first really great uh schwarzenegger films and as such one of the first great films <laughs> forget you gone with the wind and citizen kane <laughs> terminator in 1984 and everything before was just crap well conan was okay <laughs> right in 82 so i'm curious you know when was the first time you saw terminator uh i think i saw well, i was probably a teenager mm-hmm. um Probably about 13 or 14. I remember thinking it was... Uh, I was surprised my parents would let me watch it because it was super violent. There was some sex scenes in it. And uh, it really impressed me, needless to say. <laughs> the sex scenes. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, for me, I taped this movie off uh, TV. It was the Tough Guy Thursday. Every week they would show a different action movie. And I taped this movie off that. You mean PVR? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, I was ahead of the curve back in like 1990. And so I taped this and Predator and I watched the two of them over and over and over. I've, I probably watched Terminator, uh, the first one, about maybe 12 times, 14 times as a kid. And then Terminator 2 came out and I was like, Terminator's lame. Like, why would I want to watch the first one? So you're telling me yeah. that uh, you watched Terminator and Predator, the TV edit, yes. 12 or 14 times. That is correct. And that was your introduction to Arnold correct. Schwarzenegger. And I don't think, I may be wrong, but I don't think I saw the proper uncut version of the Terminator until maybe four or five years ago, uh, our local theater chain um, does this thing called um, uh, Flashback Friday, it used to be called, but... They also have a festival over here called the Digital Film Festival, where they will show sort of for one week, in a slower week, like February or January, a bunch of older movies. And they did a double feature of Terminator and RoboCop. And I went with my friend Tyler, and we watched both of them on the big screen. And it was really cool to see this movie on the big screen after watching TV edits, you know, full frame for all those years. You must have been scandalized with all the violence and swearing sexual content you know what i must have seen it though because i had the dvd but I, i'll bet you i only watched it like maybe once like it, i i was definitely one of the schwarzenegger movies i revisited the least especially after terminator 2 like i became so obsessed with terminator 2 that this movie felt small to me and my mind was very much changed revisiting it in theaters the, the five years ago where i kind of got back on board as a bigger fan i think of this film as an adult than as a, a kid yeah, I think that's fair to say. Believe it or not, I actually saw Terminator after I saw Terminator 2. Interesting. Um, so I actually had no idea that Arnold Schwarzenegger was the bad guy in Terminator, I think, when I saw it the first time. Right. Um, so, uh, But I agree with you. It, it definitely plays better as an adult film than as a kid film. Yeah, it's not as like friendly towards sort of the... Uh, like really exhilarating blockbuster thrills that Cameron would deliver pretty much with every film going forward after this. Yeah, it's definitely more of a almost a horror film than a than an action film. Although it does have its share of action as well. It's interesting to me that they had trouble getting this movie made. James Cameron wrote it, and every studio turned it down. Well, given that his credits to that point <laughs> included. I think Piranha 2 and nothing else. Well, he'd done some work on like Battle Beyond the Stars, but yeah, it was like the Corman movies, and he didn't even finish Piranha 2. Someone else was brought in to finish that movie. But just the fact that like, you know, a young director who obviously has a certain amount of um, skill, and I'm sure he could probably talk himself into a room decently, um, could put together this project, which screams kind of like slasher movie tropes, 
at the height of slasher movies. Like, this is 1980, uh, he would have been probably doing this, like, 82, 83. Like, Friday the 13th Part 3 is out at this point. You've got the... Well, the movie's clearly borrowed a lot from some, some John Carpenter. Sure, yeah, and all that stuff was in the rage at the moment. I'm surprised the studio would have kind of stuck up their nose at a project like this at that particular time. It seems like it would have been ripe for, like, you want how much? Six million? Sure, we can do that. Well, interestingly, it was, um, when you look at who produced it, uh, John Daly and Hemdale, uh, who, uh, you know, this was a fairly early production for them, I think, um, but they ultimately went on, uh, they did Platoon. Never heard of it. And The, the Lost Emperor, getting back-to-back uh, Best Picture awards. Uh, oh, The Last Emperor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no not not the first emperor you know the sequel is the last emperor the lost one is the first one because they had to find him first That's to realize right. there was a last and then there's the middle emperor but that one went straight to straight to video it'll be rebooted soon as the uh, the new emperor yeah but but anyways interestingly so hemdale because i looked it up i actually didn't know that much about them but um john daly was the and, and another guy who's the the ham and dale right um he had experience producing just about everything. He had um, managed some bands for a while. He'd managed Black Sabbath. Who? Uh, he'd managed Yes. Uh, he um, started a lot of movie careers for people as well. So he gave starts to Julia Roberts, Keanu Reeves, Denzel Washington. Um, so, you know, right around... I'm not familiar with those actors. This is an Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> no, stop, podcast. Stop, stop, stop. Uh, he was a co-promoter for uh, the Muhammad Ali fight, the Rumble in the Jungle. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, clearly had a good nose for what was going to be successful and what wasn't. Right, and it's interesting, too, that this was Cameron's first teaming with Gail Ann Hurd, who she was like a 29-year-old exec at this point. And uh, he still, like, had so much trouble selling this script because he himself wanted to direct it. So he was attached to if it was going to happen, essentially. And so he sold the rights to Terminator to her for $1. And with, he regretted it to With the caveat, because, yes. yeah, that he, he directed it. Yes. And so, there, you know, in an alternate future, you know, he keeps the rights, but someone else directs this movie. <laughs> You know, I don't think Cameron really did that poorly by it. No. Um, I don't think Gail Ann Hurd or John Daly or pretty much anyone else who was involved in this movie no. uh, did poor by Terminator. I mean, Gail Ann Hurd went on to work with Cameron in a bunch of stuff. I think uh, she married him at a certain point, too. Oh, I didn't know that. I think so. I may be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure she was one of his ex-wives. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> okay <laughs> that's a lot of it's a good thing there is only uh linda in in terminator and not right. any other female characters really at all except <laughs> her friend with the headphones um but i mean they went on they did obviously did aliens and abyss right and then gail ann heard had her you know a whole bunch of her own stuff going on too she pr initially produced the walking dead yeah for sure she's a like a big name she's yeah she's a Big deal in Hollywood circles, we'll say. Yeah, and so, yeah, this movie was given, like, a $6.4 million budget, and it ultimately went on to make $38 million. So it wasn't, like, a phenomenon. I think, sort of, the, the cult of Terminator really grew with home video and things like that, where it became this big, big classic movie. Because, you know, that year was, like, uh, the 21st biggest hit of the year. But if you look at the top five, it's crazy. So the top five were, in first place, with Beverly Hills Cop with $234 million. Followed by Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Gremlins, and Karate Kid. Like, Terminator was going up against heavy hitters that year. This wasn't like, uh, like was it 87 when you had three men and a baby ruling the year. That's a big year. That's, yeah. That's interesting, especially considering that. So that was a big year for, uh, uh, I can't remember his name, but the guy who played the gun store clerk in Terminator. Oh, was, uh, Dick Miller. Yeah, yeah, he was also in Gremlins. Yeah, for sure. Dick Miller, was. You know, <laughs> 1984 was his year. Yeah, <laughs> Joe Dante favorite. So you can join us on uh, MillerGeddon.com. <laughs> We're going to change the focus of this podcast. And, uh, you know, this was a, a pretty good movie for Arnold in that it wasn't, as I said, like a, a huge phenomenon, but it did well. And Schwarzenegger had also uh, Conan the Destroyer that year, which made $27 million. So it was behind Terminator. This was definitely the bigger hit. But it's funny because Schwarzenegger, while shooting uh, Destroyer, was asked about this production, um, and he referred to it as like just some shitty movie he had to shoot. <laughs> like he was not particularly 
confident in it, I think, at the time. Well, I imagine that, you know, you go from working with someone like John Millius. Yeah. Uh, who, I mean, I don't know what he's like, but I, I just kind of always imagine... He seems him, delightful. <laughs> yeah, I just imagine him kind of smashing all the furniture in the room just on principle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you go work with, you know, uh, let's have a moment of silence for the Titanic James Cameron. Right, exactly. <laughs> and what I find maybe one of the most interesting things about this movie is that this is really the first and last time we saw James Cameron working with restrictions. We would never again see James Cameron bringing in a movie under two hours or working with a budget this small. You know, next he would go on to do Aliens, and then it would just keep going, yeah, with The Abyss, Terminator 2, etc. Like, this is the only time we got to see James Cameron working with, like, very minimal, you know, uh, resources and really scraping something together really exciting. Okay, I was going to say, uh, we don't want to totally discount Piranha 2. Uh, <laughs> well, again, you know, depending on who you ask associated with that movie, he may not have worked barely on it at all. Like, Lance Henriksen, I saw him at a fan expo, and I asked him about this, or someone asked. I think it was me, because I don't know who else would ask about Piranha 2 this morning. But um, he uh, was actually said James Cameron did like a day or two, whereas other accounts have James Cameron working you know, three quarters of the shoot. So the various stories as to the uh, production of uh, of uh, Piranha 2 are very uh, strange and conflicting. And that's why Piranha 2 is legendarily still in the courts today yeah. over the residual rights, the action <laughs> figures, the breakfast cereals. Have you seen the DVD art for it now? No. They make it look like it's uh, Avatar related. <laughs> like they give the piranhas kind of like a na- uh, Navi look. It's pretty funny. Oh, good. <laughs> and like they have the font from Avatar now on it. <laughs> it's awesome. So, so like some such a mar- desperate cash Some grab. marketing com- company somewhere. <laughs> but, you know, how do you feel like watching this movie now, looking at it as a James Cameron movie? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, it's awesome. It's a, It's an awesome film. It's really... It's a really tight film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, uh, it's totally relentless. Uh, you know, I've seen the film probably probably a dozen times and or more. Yeah. And I'm, you know, similar to Predator, which we've we've talked about uh, previously, uh, is just a driving film that just doesn't let up at all. And it's, uh, you know, you, you just don't get bored watching this movie. No, it, it moves at such a fast clip. And uh, there's like this really uh, like restless energy about it that I like. And James Cameron has said, he, you know, a lot of this movie was shot kind of guerrilla style because he couldn't afford permits and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so it just has that sort of breakneck pace of like someone putting a movie together on the fly, but that energy carrying over into the final product. And it almost has that sort of really cool 70s, 80s exploitation uh, movie kind of vibe that you would see, like, John Carpenter really employing in Escape from New York. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you couple that with, like, Brad Fidel's uh, synth score. It just feels very 80s, but in a really cool, immersive way. It's an it's an awesome score, by the, by it the way. It is, it is. It's, uh, it's one of those scores that comes on and you know exactly what film it's from. Oh, I mean, it's instantly iconic. The second you hear it, and... You know, Brad Fidel definitely worked in other movies, but never replicated this sort of success again. And I think the score is a huge part of the reason this movie works. Because I think a lot of the the filmmaking, I mean, it, it's slick, but it also shows sort of the seams of, you know, not having a huge budget. But there's something very epic about the score that lifts the movie up, I feel like. Yeah, well, it's interesting that, you know, I know uh, Retro Futures kind of, a big thing right now, but uh, uh, I mean, if someone in 2018 were to make a retro future movie uh, that was Terminator, <laughs> uh, it would right. be a success because that it's a. I mean, it just totally encapsulates that that feel. It is probably the uh, you know it's along with Miami Vice and all these other synth driven yeah uh, products that. Um, it basically is the future of the 80s. <laughs> and I love, too, in that era, they really embraced the idea of, like, urban decay, where all of the cities just look like hellscapes at night. Well, you gotta have garbage for lightning to blow around when someone travels through time. <laughs> and, like, you know, there's, like, punks all over the streets, uh, and everything, it just seems very, like, dangerous outside. 
And uh, I love how, you know, in this movie, there's a, a number of character actors who show up briefly mm-hmm. with the first appearance of Reese and the first appearance of Arnold. And all these guys are just, like, mumbling. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting. I mean, speaking of these character actors, you know, uh, there's something to be said there. When you look, I mean, everyone talks about how, oh, this is uh, uh, Schwarzenegger's launching point. This is James Cameron's launching point. Linda but, Hamilton. Uh, Linda Hamilton. But we've also, we've talked about Gail Ann Hurd. Uh, these guys from the Hemdale company, but there's a whole bunch of people in here yeah. who um, had huge success acting, either getting uh, Academy Awards or Emmys or uh, other awards. Um, you know, there was Bill Paxson. Yeah. Um, Brian Thompson, Brian who was the other punk who would go on to be the villain in Cobra. I know, the Night Slasher. Yeah, I he's saw on the, Star Trek I, a bunch. I, I didn't know he was in there. I, I mean, this is the first time I really registered that it was him. He was Shao uh, Kahn in Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Yeah. <laughs> Way to go, Brian. Uh, Lance Henriksen. Yeah, Lance Henriksen. There's an interesting story about Lance Henriksen. Uh, originally, James Cameron was sort of flirting with the idea of having him play Reese in the movie. And when James Cameron could not get this movie, sort of, uh, he just couldn't make it happen. And he ended up getting Lance Henriksen to dress up as the Terminator and approach like a producer and get James Cameron the meeting. Probably John Daly. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. (laughs) And so Lance Henriksen was very, you know, him and James Cameron were friends because they made uh, Piranha 2 together. And so, you know, I think early on Lance Henriksen was earmarked for a bigger role in this movie, whether it was going to be, you know, Reese or the Terminator or something. He wound up with a smaller supporting role as a cop, a very hard-boiled cop, (laughs) who keeps telling stories that get cut off. But, you know, you wonder about an alternate future where Lance Henriksen plays, like, the Michael Bean role. Uh, Or an alternate future where Lance Henriksen uh, plays an android or a replicant on board a mining ship that (laughs) touches down and uh, has to contend with an alien species. One can only wonder... Uh, um, who else? I mean, Paul Winfield uh, yeah. as the other uh, cop there. Um, and the other big choice was Arnold. I mean, Arnold at this point had done the Conans, but I think he was not quite nailed down as to what else to do with this guy other than, you know, sword and sorcery movies. And this was the first time that, you know, he was kind of put in a different kind of box. And it really paid off. I mean, originally, Arnold was not the first choice. They were considering O.J. Simpson to play the Terminator. And... I, I didn't know that. <laughs> well, they, James... just, they just thought uh, he didn't have a killer's blood in him? James Cameron said he wasn't convincing. He was too nice. <laughs> the juice. <laughs> <laughs> what is that future like with uh, O.J. Simpson as the Terminator? I don't know. A lot of Ford Bronco chases. <laughs> I, I just picture all the scenes where they're like lobbing, you know, bombs and everything at the Terminator. Playing out like the naked gun with Nordberg like fumbling around yeah. like walking into doors. You know, if the glove don't fit, uh, cut off your skin and reveal your <laughs> <laughs> your metal endoskeleton. Exactly. <laughs> so ultimately Arnold gets the job. He has like 12 lines of dialogue. It was originally supposed to be like 24 and they cut it down. What is your feeling watching this movie now as, obviously, a student of Schwarzenegger? Does this feel like... (laughs) Is is that... Should I be putting that on my business cards? (laughs) Does this feel like an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie to you? Uh, Yeah, I mean, it does. I mean, it is one of the movies where he, you know, he definitely is a leading role as the villain here. But he's not... uh, He's not driving the dialogue, right? He's not doing any exposition, unlike most of his other films. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, the way he plays the Terminator, it, it's kind of hard to imagine uh, anyone else playing the Terminator quite like he does. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, you take someone like Robert Patrick in Terminator 2. Or Byung-Hun Lee in uh, Terminator Genesis. <laughs> uh, I wasn't going to go that far, <laughs> but uh, you know who who are smaller people though play it differently, uh, right? Or Christina Loken too played it very differently. Yeah, but I mean Schwarzenegger is just uh, you know if you were to think of the Terminator, just the way he moves in the movie, it's uh, the way he talks. He's it's uh, I, I find anyways very convincing. I absolutely consider it to be Schwarzenegger. Do you, Cameron? He definitely has the right robotic kind of look. Um, it's interesting to see Arnold play a role like this. This character reminds me in a lot of ways of the um, Yul Brynner uh, character in Westworld, the original movie. 
um, which of course has since spawned a TV series. Um, but uh, sort of the idea of the killer robot that is unstoppable, I think it could be easily played as goofy. And I think Arnold is perfect in grounding it in a way that feels like very human in the sense that like when you look at him, he looks like just an unstoppable guy. But at the same point, he gives him that, like the subtle movements. Like I love there's a scene where he's just driving, his head's like turning back and forth, back and forth, kind of scanning the roads. Mm -hmm. And it has, you know, a nice subtlety. I don't know in 1983 when they're shooting this, if Arnold is really trying to hone his craft as an actor versus how well James Cameron just knows how to use him. Because I think Arnold would become a much better actor down the road. I don't know if at this point he was really trying for that sort of thing. I know he practiced with the guns a lot for this movie. He trained in gun usage a lot, but I don't know how much of an actor's technique he brought, but Cameron definitely, I think, gave him a lot of uh, advice that has paid off very well for the performance. And, I mean, it became, I guess, his most famous role because he's reprised it several times since. You know, I think it's worth mentioning that there is at least one other Terminator in this film, Fra yeah. Franco Colombo. I had forgotten about this. Yeah, the future scene where, uh, where uh, it's hard to tell, is this Michael Bean remembering what the future is like or Linda Hamilton imagining what the future is like? They have but, a very similar vision of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but Franco Colombo plays a different model Terminator uh, who's a very scary guy. Yeah. Uh, now tell me a little bit about Franco Colombo. Do you know anything about this guy? Only what I learned from Pumping Iron. I mean, that is? Uh, that he's a big guy. A friend <laughs> he of Arnold. Pump Iron. Yeah, pretty much. He probably is really into egg whites. Right. Um, chicken? Chicken. Hangs out with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right, yeah. Can't put his arms over his head. <laughs> <laughs> I actually really like this scene. And we should talk about the future war stuff for a bit, but... Yeah, that's a, a scene where we're seeing kind of a flashback to the future and this, you know, this compound, which looks I, really depressing. I think that would be a flash forward. Oh, yes. Sorry, a flash forward. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a flashback for Reese, but a flash forward for the audience. Um, but uh, we see, yeah, this infiltrator go into the camp, the underground camp, and just start destroying everyone. I think it's really interesting to see the Terminators in this movie just how unstoppable and scary they are, these T-800s. I think we would see, not in Terminator 2, but when you go forward, that they would make the Terminators more and more stoppable. But you can see at this point, they were really, really scary. Yeah, although I will say, uh, if you're going to create, this is just a, a tip for Skynet, if you're out there listening. We are listening. <laughs> I don't think that's what Skynet sounds like. Yes, we do. We program this voice. <laughs> We are from the future. I can see why they would want to destroy us if that's the... <laughs> that's... Knock, knock. <laughs> oh, no, no. No, stop. Drop the bomb. <laughs> so, Skynet. Skynet, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> if you're going to create an infiltrator robot, uh, I'd recommend... Not going with Franco Colombo and Arnold Schwarzenegger as the two guys who are going to blend in the most. That's very true. I mean, O.J. Simpson would have blended in more, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's... It's telling that when we get to future Terminator movies, they never again go to the big muscular guy, really. Other than Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, you know, we get the you know actors of more smaller stature who look a little more like everyday people on the street. But it sure worked here. But I want to talk about the future war stuff because a lot of that stuff became hugely iconic and it's freaky. Like the way they stage these future war scenes is really intense. Cameron does a lot with a little because he cannot have had much money to work with. Yeah, and um, and they're really impressive. I mean, they still hold up. Yeah, there's uh, little things like the uh, the drone ship looks a little creaky, but other than that. It yeah, looks pretty great. You know, and the lasers kind of have that Star Wars effect of sure. looking drawn on. But um, but it's, you know, for what it is, for a fairly low-budget future scene, they're great. They're uh, uh, set really well, driven really well. Uh, Michael Bean's usually at the center of, of all these flash-forwards or flashbacks. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah, they're I mean, they're impressive. It's a shame, actually. I know I mentioned it when we were watching the movie that... Uh, you know, Terminator Salvation didn't just make all the fight scenes like that. 
they probably could have done it on a smaller budget and it would have been a way better movie. Now, watching these war scenes, that did raise a question to me. The way we see this war depicted in this movie, could you imagine watching a two-hour version of that? Because I don't know if I could. I think it would be really unpleasant to sit through. Well, I mean, you'd probably want some dialogue. Sure, I mean, insert the dialogue. But even when you see, when they go into the underground compound, like, it looks so depressing. People are just, like, hacking and eating rats. Like, I don't know. Yeah, watching uh, fires in TVs. Yeah, like, I mean, we definitely didn't see Bryce Dallas Howard and uh, Christian Bale doing that in Terminator Salvation. I just want to stop there for a sec, because it was only this time, and like I said, I've seen the movie a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. uh, but I can't think of a worse place to have a fire than, in, <laughs> than inside a television set. And why is that? Because generally they're made of plastic or wood. Right. And, um, you know, it wouldn't be, I mean, it might be entertaining for a little bit, but if you're living in an underground bunker without any kind of ventilation system, I don't know how keen people would be on you lighting a TV on fire. Maybe it was Christmas in this flashback and it was the Yule Log. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I hadn't thought of that. But that's a good point. That's my fan theory. I'd like everyone to uh, carry forth now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can. You should start some fan fiction. But do you think they kind of painted themselves into a corner with this future war, so that when you got to Salvation, I feel like when they made Salvation, they knew they couldn't just do that for two hours straight if they wanted to not depress the audience into just like a stupor. But by not doing that, essentially, then the audience is going. Well, that's not what Cameron showed us. I think they could have done better than having Batman just not turn into Batman and be in the future. Well, that's true. I, and we will hit on Terminator Salvation somewhere down the road. It's going to be interesting to do the other Terminators. Like Terminator 2, we know where we stand on that one. But it'll be interesting to track, you know, Genesis and Salvation and stuff like that. Like, I have not revisited those movies. Uh, I mean, I, I haven't either. To be honest, I actually haven't seen Genesis yet, which is shameful of me, I know. Then I'm looking forward to watching it with you. Don't watch it before we do this, that episode. It'll be interesting. But, um, you know, this movie, we kind of compared it to a slasher film. It is, you know, it's a slasher film. It's a chase film. One or the other. It can be, and a little bit of both. But how do you feel about the structure of this movie, of just this propulsive chase? Like, do you think it works in building up the characters? I mean, I think so. I I think the the movie, like the structure of the movie, is uh, great in that when you think about how simple it is, really, it's just uh, you know, there's a woman who's going to sire the savior of the future, mm -hmm. who is running away from a robot. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's pretty much the movie. And in the middle, and in the middle somewhere, they don't bang some guy from the future. Right. <laughs> <laughs> who has a great line for her too? I got to use that one day. What's the line? Yeah, I came back for you, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like, I remember Entertainment Weekly, some years ago, did a list of, like, the most romantic scenes in movie history. And one of the writers emphasized that scene. And I believe it was a female writer, and said that that line to her was, like, to her, one of the most romantic things she'd ever seen in a movie. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, I thought that was really cool to see that on the list. Really? Like, a, a, a someone with PTSD turning to you and saying... <laughs> I came for you. That's uh, hasn't worked for me. <laughs> but you've tried. <laughs> uh, I've tried. <laughs> but what I find really impressive about this movie is that it could just be a good, you know, chase movie or slasher movie. Uh, you could walk away and be like, that was really technically well made and it was exciting and scary, etc. But it's more than that. Like, when you follow this movie... It really impresses me how much you feel like you've spent a lot of time with, like, Linda Hamilton, Sarah Connor, and seen her ch change over this experience. Like, it doesn't feel like this sort of whiplash effect of, like, she goes from, you know, sort of innocent, young, 20-something to warrior woman. Like, it feels like a progression in a way that is really impressive. Because I think, you know, just a few years later, James Cameron would spend, like, two and a half hours... You know, charting this with voiceovers and a lot of more kind of in-depth character building stuff. And somehow it all works. And I don't even really understand why. It's kind of the magic of it. Mm -hmm. No, like I say, it's really it's a really tight movie, which is great. There's uh, virtually no filler in there at all. No. 
And we should talk about Michael Bean because Michael Bean is the unsung hero of the movie. Cameron and Hamilton would go on, and of course Schwarzenegger would go on to, you know, big things. Michael Bean never really broke through. He had awesome roles in James Cameron movies, but he never got the level of recognition I think he deserved for this movie. I think he's fantastic in it, and he has that sort of raw, nerved kind of, uh, like, grittiness to him. But he also has that sort of doe-eyed innocence that is really compelling to see brought out in his experiences with Sarah Connor. Yeah, I mean, if anything... In terms of acting ability, it really is Michael Bean that drives this movie. Um, I haven't really paid attention to it before, because normally I'm watching it for the explosions and the car chases. Of course. But, but for the purposes of this you know, educational podcast, mm-hmm. uh, he, uh, he's, I mean, he's actually got a really great range. And yeah. um, really pulls off the future PTSD, you know, hardened but also kind of innocent soldier really well. Right, like he has that scene where he's confessing his love to Sarah and he's just like, you know, there's never been a woman before. And it's like the most vulnerable moment for this character. Like, Sarah is someone who we see in sort of these various vulnerable states throughout the movie because she's always being pursued or chased or what have you and scared. And with him, we never see that. He's always this guy who's just going to keep, you know, unloading weapons on the Terminator to try and get her away from it and always going to try and save her but in this moment we actually get to see him kind of have a emotional uh, vulnerable moment and it really works like he pulls it off beautifully mm-hmm. and i love how he kind of confesses to her and then like shrinks away almost in embarrassment yeah it was funny actually the uh this some of the scenes where he's running around first from the running away first from the cops and then from uh the terminator in its various forms really reminded me of of other scenes in other james cameron films especially yeah. uh this like the way he moved it reminded me a lot of the way uh newt uh moved in the early scenes of aliens right um just the, you know part of it's uh the acting part of it's also just the way cameron frames it and everything is just mm-hmm. uh um you know really gives an impression of an individual that basically spends most of its time running right yeah yeah you could also see james i don't know if you noticed but uh the shot at the end where she's crushed the Terminator, the exoskeleton, and the hand is right in her face mm-hmm. is very similar to the Queen Alien snapping at Ripley's face at the end of Aliens when she's in the power loader. Mm-hmm. It's very, very similar. But no, that's a that's a good call, yeah, on uh, on on Reese and the Newt uh, comparison. What did you think of just some of the set pieces in this movie? Because Cameron is known for being the guy who can stage huge sh- uh, set pieces, and this they're more stripped down. Do you mean the chases or the or the locations? Either or, whichever ones you want to hit on first. Well, I mean, I mean Terminator and Terminator Two and Terminator Three, for that matter. That's one thing they always did well was the uh, if you needed large vehicles <laughs> chasing other large vehicles and yeah. exploding, uh, and you know trucks jackknifing and cars flipping over. Uh, Terminator movies are some of the best chases uh, you'll find. What is your favorite chase in this movie? Because there's a few. Uh, my favorite chase, it's hard not to like the one with uh, with them throwing the homemade uh, nitroglycerin out the window. At the when t- Arnie's on the bike. On the on the bike. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a pretty iconic scene. Yeah, it, that one is definitely, I think, the one that people really took away from the movie. Because, you know, he, he's on the bike, he gets wiped out, they, he gets in the, the semi. And the idea of a Terminator in a semi, of course, would pay off many times in the future Terminator movies. Um, the one that I didn't remember as, as clearly was the one where he's in the cop car. And, of course, the cop car would come into play in uh, Terminator 2 again. But uh, seeing Arnold Schwarzenegger drive the cop car was really cool as well. Like, I thought James Cameron did wonders shooting these chases. I'm sure he shot them really, in like, very quickly. There's no way he had the luxury of time to stage these elaborate, ambitious sequences. But somehow, they feel very grand in scope. There's no way other movies at this point, with this sort of budget, were cranking out things that looked and held up this well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it, it doesn't doesn't hurt either that, uh, you know, it's not just a car chase that we see in other movies, but it's a car chase where the driver is a giant robot with a shotgun and yeah uh the 
That's one thing Cameron's always been good at is been uh, gradually deteriorating vehicles with gunfire yes. and pillars and, and all sorts of things. Yeah, that's one thing I miss seeing in the Avatar movies. <laughs> you know, hopefully uh, part two can do can add a little of that. One of my favorite moments was actually something I noticed this time for the first time. Uh, at least it jumped out to me more this time was the scene where they're in the parking garage and the two cars are driving parallel to each other. And you see shots from, like, uh, Reese's point of view firing a shotgun out the window as Arnold's firing a shotgun back in the cop car. And just how well that is shot. It's definitely, like, a small moment compared to the big, like, Arnold wiping out on the bike. Um, but it just looks so cool. And it's so well staged. You can see why James Cameron never really struggled again. Like, this movie is so well directed. This is a really amazing calling card for a director with a, you know, doing his first low-budget Hollywood movie. Mm -hmm. You got to wonder what, uh, you know, what Sarah Connor was thinking uh, with that shotgun next to her face uh, blasting <laughs> through the passenger side window. If people don't go deaf from bullets in movies like they probably should. Yeah, no. Uh, and that's what you, you got to hand it to Kyle Reese there. I mean, you know, he saws the handle off this uh, 12 gauge police shotgun and is firing it pretty much one handed for... Uh, for the entire movie, which would be a pretty impressive feat, but it's, it is kind of dwarfed by Schwarzenegger uh, double-wielding uh, double yeah. assault rifles the entire movie. My favorite badass Reese moment, though, is in the uh, the club, where Schwarzenegger is approaching Linda Hamilton, and he's going to shoot her in the head, the laser sights on her forehead, whatever, and you see Reese like, whip out the shotgun from his uh, from his trench coat, that shot is amazing. He just looks so cool. That is easily, I think, the, the coolest Reese shot in the movie. Yeah, so Michael Bean, if you're out there listening, for a skinny guy, you're pretty badass. Yeah, and that's, of course, in the uh, Tech Noir uh, <laughs> Club, which I love the name. It's very fitting for the movie, obviously. Pretty on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> a little on the nose. Do you think that inspired the Tech War novels William Shatner would go on to write? <laughs> uh, I don't know if those novels had any inspiration at all. <laughs> So let's just talk about the 80s-ness of this movie because it is, a, you know, people would ca could call this movie dated, but it is also it... exists in that perfect point in the 80s where movies were made this way. And I love the look of it. I wouldn't change anything about it. So I'm not ridiculing the aesthetics of the 80s. But, like, what do you feel now watching it when you're seeing sort of the, you know, the roommate life in the 80s and, like, the club-like uh, tech noir? Well... I don't know. I mean, that looked like an awesome club. Yeah, I would go there. Um, I don't know if, I mean, you know, as far as roommates go, you know, someone who puts their headphones in all day could <laughs> could be worse. This, you know, if I'm going to have an iguana and they have their headphones in, I think I'm the bad roommate. Having had uh, two iguanas in my lifetime, <laughs> I will say you wouldn't normally let them just run wild around the house. That's a really bad idea. And one thing that's always fascinating about Pugsley the Iguana is the sequence where, uh, where Sarah Connor's holding it. And its mouth is open the whole time. Because I've never seen that. Like, I had two, you know, my sister had an iguana and I had an iguana. And they were pretty docile. Like, I didn't see either of them sit there with their mouth gaping open. So I don't know if they were doing something in that scene to get its attention in some way. I don't know. But that's enough about Pugsley the iguana. <laughs> More specifically, that's enough about Cameron and his iguanas. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love all the stuff with the roommate, Ginger, I think her name is. Um, because, you know, this character could be so disposable and forgettable. Like, it would be so easy. There's a billion movies at this time period where there's the, you know, the disposable teenagers or whatever. Well, they get she, killed was, and she was pretty disposable. <laughs> but she's so quirky and funny. Like, all the stuff with her and her boyfriend is very memorable and goofy. Like, it's fun to watch. It's not like you just kind of roll your eyes and wait for her to get gunned down. Um, or is that what you did? I mean, as soon as she comes into the movie, you're like, oh, she's dead. <laughs> did you think that? Oh, for sure. Okay. And as soon as her boyfriend comes in the movie, you're like, mm, he's going to be in Top Gun. <laughs> Very true. Also, another amazing synth score. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, what do you think about the comedy relief in this movie? There's very little, but did it work? Yeah, I mean, it's not a movie where you want uh, to have too much comedy. No. Uh, you know, you don't want people... The sequels would amp up the comedy much more. Yeah, they would. They would. Um, but, you know, would this movie work if Reese tried to hit the Terminator in the face with a pie? <laughs> I don't think so. How did you uh, know about that from uh, Terminator Genesis? 
<laughs> I hope you're joking. Blueberry. I really hope you're joking. You'll have to wait and see. I'll have to wait and see. <laughs> yeah, like, it, it to me is interesting because James Cameron would really go heavier into humor later down the road. He doesn't in Aliens very much, except with some of the Bill Paxton, Jeanette Goldstein stuff. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, when you get into, like, True Lies and Terminator 2 and stuff like that, he, he blends much more mm-hmm. comedy in. Yeah, Terminantic. <laughs> that um, that but, was the one where Leonardo DiCaprio played the robot that broke the boat in half yes yes correct correct yeah because mm-hmm. you know real real people don't sink like that <laughs> i mean you could see glimmers of the inspiration for titanic in this movie though like in the scene where sarah connor turns come to on and says, come on draw me like your french girls <laughs> <laughs> that's right in fact titanic was actually just a metaphor for the terminator I am curious, though, we, we, you know, I've been talking about James Cameron, obviously, a lot. Where does the Terminator rank for you in his filmography? Because, you know, this is definitely the smallest movie he ever made, and the least flashy in a lot uh, of ways. Piranha 2, don't forget about Piranha 2. That's also true. <laughs> James Cameron doesn't acknowledge that movie. As far as he's concerned, he never made it. Well, we better acknowledge it multiple times yeah. here for him. <laughs> I have seen Piranha 2, I could say, have you? Uh... No, I don't think I have. Uh, maybe I've maybe I did see it. It was pretty forgettable. I probably um, I was probably under the influence of some college experimentation at the time. Right. Um, I will say this: Piranha Two. Uh, it's pretty terrible. Piranha One is a really fun Joe Dante movie, and it has a uh, Dick Miller in it. It's definitely worth checking out. So I would I would say watch Piranha One. Join us for Miller Geddon. <laughs> So yeah, where does um, Terminator rank for you? Like, do you think this is like top tier James Cameron, or do you put somewhere in the middle? It's pretty top tier. I mean, he's done so many great movies. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, he did uh, Abyss, Aliens, uh, Titanic, Avatar, uh, all of which are pretty iconic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but if I'm being honest with myself, and if I'm being honest with you, <laughs> and to you, good listeners, uh, if left to my own devices and I have a choice between Titanic and Terminator, I'm probably going to throw on the Terminator. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, Terminator's in my upper tier for me, for sure. You know. And I go back and forth now, and I'm, I'll try and settle it when we get to Terminator 2, which one I prefer. I'm not sure at the moment. I can't honestly say. But um, to me, yeah, those are near the top of his filmography for me. Yeah, I mean, Terminator, Terminator 2, and Aliens are probably yeah, my, I would agree with that. my favorite movies that he's made. Yeah, for sure. I think Avatar, for me, is probably at the bottom at this point. Mm. What do you think of the world building in this movie? Because, again, low-budget, scrappy movie. And yet, James Cameron really builds a universe in this movie. And he does it really, really subtly in the ideas of setting up this future of, you know, the far-off 2029 battle uh, scenes. Um, the Judgment Day, um, and all sort of the illusions and uh, descriptions of how Terminators work, and Skynet, and all that sort of stuff. Like, how well do you think this movie creates the the universe of Terminator? I think it does pretty well. I mean, it leaves a lot unsaid, which really works. Well, it definitely works in, like, broad strokes, which mm-hmm. works really well. Like, they're broad strokes that work. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't feel just, like, kind of vaguely sketched. Yeah, I mean, and the visions of the future, the flash forwards, uh, you know, in some ways, uh, they're little, you know, little vignettes mm-hmm. that pull the rest of the movie together. Right. Uh, I would have loved a shot of, like, John Connor standing there with binoculars like we got in Terminator 2, but... Uh... Well, I don't know. I mean, Edward Furlong wasn't old enough, and, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm sure he was rubbing his hands together just waiting for that moment. How old is Edward Furlong at that point in time? Um, oh, he... five? He was pretty young, but he was smoking a lot of cigarettes to really add some lines. <laughs> he was hanging around Dick Miller too much. That's right. Because <laughs> Dick Miller was only uh, 22 in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. Dick Miller jokes. <laughs> yeah. You know, if Dick, if Dick jokes don't work, I'll tell you, Dick Miller jokes don't work. 
<laughs> so let's transition from that character actor, Dick Miller, into Earl Bowen, who plays the criminal psychologist the police bring in. Yeah, now here's a guy <laughs> who literally, in the movie, he says, I could build my career on this guy. Yeah. And he literally did. He built his <laughs> acting career on this guy. Because as far as I know, he never really appeared in anything except these Terminator movies. He did show up in a Crest commercial or something. <laughs> Earl Bowen in a crest. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> Sorry, Earl. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> wants to look like Earl Bowen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like, like, more like <laughs> Earl Bowen would bankrupt Oil of Olay. But, I mean, there are some products that Earl Bowen could sell. Um, like paper bags with happy faces drawn on them. Um, mirror <laughs> frames without mirrors. Um, mortgage brokers. Yeah. <laughs> well, if there's ever a company that sells mortgage brokers, I don't think that's a thing. <laughs> very true, very true. I hope I, 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 I can speak to Earl Bowen. I have a little bit of knowledge about Earl Bowen. You can actually speak to him? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish. But no, I mean, he was on a lot of 80s sitcoms. He usually played, like, principals and things like that. And uh, he's also in the Star Trek Next Generation episode from Season 2, where Silence has Lease, where he plays the alien Nagillum, who was named after Richard Mulligan of Empty Nest fame. <laughs> that is not a joke. I am dead serious. Really? Yeah, yeah, they were big fans of Richard Mulligan for some reason. Well, I'm glad it's not a choke. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be a very funny one. Yeah. But, um, you know, Earl Bowen would uh, become this recurring ter- character. He's in, I believe, every Terminator movie except for Sal- uh, Salvation. And uh, he has a lot of really fun stuff to do. He has a scene where he's showing the video of his uh, interview with Reese to Sarah Connor and the other cops. And he's just having all these, like, kind of wry asides about the interview. He's, I think he has a lot more personality in this movie than he would in any follow-ups. Well, I mean, he was traumatized by the uh, multiple shootings of the police officers. (laughs) But he didn't see them, because he was walking out the door as Arnold walked in the first time. Oh, good catch. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Now... I need to rewatch Terminator 2 because I can't remember. Does he recognize the Terminator when he sees sees it? Well, maybe he would just from TV footage. Anyway. I, I, I mean, I, I seem to remember him. Yeah, because he drops the cigarette, right? Like his, his jaw like goes slack. Mm-hmm. But that could be just from video footage or whatever of, of the scene of the Terminator since the attack on the police station. Because he doesn't notice Arnold in this film. Well, who knows? I mean... But speaking of that scene, I was keeping a tally. So they said, you know, there's 30 cops in this building. Yeah. Uh, there was at least 12 that were killed on scene, as okay. well as uh, all sorts of gunshots uh, uh, going on, going on off screen. So I mean, I mean, I imagine the death count here is really quite high. A lot of law enforcement officials. Yes. Lost did, their lives on this day. Did Paul Winfield die? Oh yeah, both Paul. Did he? Because they show he gets shot and then, like, crawls kind of into that office and Lance Henriksen comes out with a gun. Lance Henriksen definitely dies. I couldn't tell if Paul Winfield did. Um, Well, they don't show Lance Henriksen get shot on screen. Not on screen, but it's implied for sure that he died. I think it's pretty implied that uh, Paul Winfield was actually shot and probably died along with the rest of the cops, too. Yeah, it was unclear. Like, he was shot for sure, but I don't know if it was fatally. Well, has he shown up in any other movie? Uh, No. (laughs) Uh, is there any planned spin-off that you're aware of? Terminator, the Paul Winfield story? You can't even name his character, can you? Traxler. Yeah, that's a pretty great name, Traxler. <laughs> yeah. I hope James Cameron was like took a break and went for lunch after he wrote that name down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if there's a list of uh, 80s, uh, 80s cop names, Traxler is definitely on that list. <laughs> that big shootout in the police station. Is a huge set piece within, you know, action cinema. How do you think it holds up? I think it's great. And do you find it, like, still really, like, impactful to watch? I think it's great to watch. I mean, it's, uh, the, ma- the amount of carnage that gets laid down in a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the first time in the movie that you really get the impression that, uh, holy shit, the Terminator is basically invincible. 
Yeah, for sure. And also the sense that, like, we've previously seen the Terminator go up against uh, Kyle Reese, like a single person. But otherwise, he's operating in fairly uh, harmless spaces. You know, he's surrounded by crowds, but none of them are going to attack him. This is the first time we see the Terminator surrounded by armed people and just, like, could not give a crap. Like, just walks right through them all. And I think that really does a good job in sort of amping up the stakes and uh, sort of building the intensity of what this Terminator can do. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I mean, one thing this movie does really well is every time there's a major altercation with the Terminator, right? there's a little bit more firepower than there was in the last altercation. Yes, definitely. So, you know, you think, well, a shotgun won't kill him, but I'm sure uh, 30 cops can. Right. And then you're like, well, 30 cops won't kill him. I'm sure a pipe bomb on a, it's being thrown in a motorcycle will. Yeah. And then you're like, well, a pipe bomb, I'm sure an exploding tanker truck will take care of him. Was that a gasoline truck? I think it was a milk truck. <laughs> it's all the hormones they put in there. Sure, yeah. It was a commentary. <laughs> Um, the Terminator is primarily about dairy. <laughs> what did you think, you know, we should kind of seg into talking a bit about the effects, because Arnold isn't the only, uh, you know, special effect used in bringing the Terminator to life. We see puppetry, we see um, stop motion. How? What did you think, revisiting the movie now, of the other techniques Cameron uses? Because he has the, sort of the uh, animatronic Arnold head for the scenes where he's doing self-surgery. Self-surgery was a big thing in 80s movies. We saw it in Predator, uh, Rambo 2, which Cameron wrote. Uh, that was a big thing in the 80s, wasn't it? Self-surgery in movies. Uh, yeah, I think it was. I mean, I mean, what can be tougher than having to cauterize a wound with a heated up Bowie knife? True enough. I On mean, yourself. Having done it myself, I can say. It takes guts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do it just for fun. Right, right. Um, but, uh, you know, what did you think of the animatronic... Arnold and as well as the uh, the the exoskeleton. Well, I mean, it's it, it, kind of hit and miss, really. Mm-hmm. Um, like the in some cases, the exoskeleton was really quite menacing. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you got to hand it the the head of Arnold Schwarzenegger, the prosthetic head. Yeah. It's it's kind of the uncanny valley where yeah you're like there's something wrong with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and you realize <laughs> it's because he's you know, built like a, a wax doll there. And then likewise with the, the endoskeleton, I keep calling it exoskeleton, um, you, you know, some of the stop motion and blue screen stuff. Right. Uh, you know, if there's anywhere that the movie looks a little bit dated, it's probably there. It's not that it's bad. It's just kind of a, a little bit of a sign of the times. And it's it's a little bit surprising when you think about, um, you know, it's Stan Winston. Mm-hmm. behind most if not all of the effects right. certainly the creature effects there and he he's the guy who did uh jurassic park predator yep. edward scissorhands iron man aliens he's a legend yeah. yeah he's won probably four or five academy awards for special effects i think more than that probably even maybe really and especially and because makeup too he would have won right uh, various makeup effects i believe he won uh could be wrong but makeup for terminator 2 of course, for the Arnold, you know, metal skin. I was actually really impressed with how good the makeup was on Arnold, where he has the Terminator eye. Because we actually see the actor with the, you know, the, the red eye, and it looked great. Mm-hmm. Which makes then the scene with the dummy head look kind of, you're like, oh man, could they have not found a different way to do it? Yeah, was it, I, I didn't really understand why they needed a prosthetic head. Like, why yeah. couldn't they just put a put a flashlight in his eye and call it a day yeah like to me those scenes it's interesting how jarring they are now because to me they were not so when i saw them originally i don't recall ever being distracted by it until i got maybe into my early 20s yeah i mean i still don't find it like i said i don't find it offensive no it's just kind of awkward it's a little odd yeah it's a little odd uh for sure um, yeah, the endoskeleton is held up way better than, uh, than say like the EV-99 in, in Robocop, which looks crazy now, but, uh, I like that they kind of blend the stop motion. Was with... that Stan Winston as well? I don't think so. Um, but they blend the, the, uh, the endoskeleton, uh, stop motion stuff with a live action puppet. Right. Yeah. And the, just the general sculpt of that creation is so fantastic. 
that it works in stop motion pretty well. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty iconic prop. Yeah. Right? I mean, uh, if you were to hold up that robot next to a bunch of other robots, you'd know which one was the Terminator. Yeah. Which do you find scarier? The uh, endoskeleton or the Arnold Schwarzenegger version of the Terminator? Um, well, you know, they're both they're both pretty scary. Yeah. It's actually, I mean, that's one thing to give credit to the special effects folks there is they did a pretty good job of making the um the robot move like arnold schwarzenegger mm -hmm. or maybe it's just that arnold schwarzenegger did such a good job moving like a robot mm -hmm. um but uh i want to go back just for a sec to the makeup yeah i thought it was really great throughout the movie that um as the movie progresses schwarzenegger kind of gets um like paler and sweatier and looks less and less human yeah uh, as the movie goes on and more and more kind of like sickly and robotic and right. cre creepy uh and i thought that was a fantastic effect kind of culminating in you know him being caught in the fire oh yeah definitely mm -hmm. definitely um what are your thoughts now the final sequence where she's like crawling away from the uh endoskeleton that still is I think, an amazingly tense sequence oh it's so scary yes right like uh and I think it's tense, like, it's tense now, but I remember, I still remember the first time I saw it. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought, finally, they've blown this thing up. Right. And the movie is coming to an end. Yeah. And then, the, and then the Terminator sits up again after we've seen it explode and crawls after her with that one arm. Right. Um, and her with her broken leg or, or stabbed leg. It's very tense, very scary. It really does tap into sort of the best elements of like a slasher film where you really are on the edge of your seat like very few slasher movies pull off that level of intensity and suspense but cameron does and some of the great ones like say halloween do mm -hmm. uh and i think you know it's just that perfect just brilliant direction under james cameron you know the score the sound effects it just all works so beautifully and uh I i'm still impressed at how effective it is because it feels almost like it should be feel more dated, maybe, but it doesn't. It feels so timeless, mm -hmm. and it's so satisfying when she hits that crusher button and just destroys it. Yeah, although I don't, she she really lingered with that arm around her neck well, for a looked, little. It looked little, great on a little screen. longer than I would. Yeah. Do you think if this movie were made nowadays and for the very first time, do you think they would have killed Reese in sort of that unceremonious a fashion? It's hard to say, really. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, I think if it was made by a big studio, I mean, we've seen the the effects of that, right? And mm -hmm. basically, Terminator Two was Terminator One, yeah, uh, made by a big studio, yeah. Um, but you know, if it were made in kind of the way this one was made, you know, a, a low budget, or mm -hmm. I guess not low budget, medium right. budget um, film with more or less unknown actors and unknown cast and crew uh it's hard to say i don't know what do you think i don't think if this movie gets made now reese dies the way he does i think it's a more kind of protracted uh like a really big hero moment with like more of a dramatic score kind of moment uh i don't think it's that kind of like you know bomb going off him flopping down the stairs and her finding him just dead i think he has final words i think there's something yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, he did. Uh, he, that's one thing that was missing is a final word of, "I've always loved you." Now sure. run or something like that. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the way it. I mean, I mean, in a lot of ways, this movie was never about Reese, right? This movie's right. about uh, Sarah Connor and the Terminator. Right. Yeah. And that kind of that kind of thankless. Uh, final wordless death underscores that. Yeah, and it's it's a bit of a shock death because you don't expect her to find him completely dead. Mm -hmm. You know, when she rolls him over, his eyes are just blank and open. Well, especially since, you know, he throws the <clears throat> the bomb into the Terminator and, yeah. then, and then rolls himself down the stairs. Yes. Uh, so, you know, he'd think if he was going to die from it, he'd uh, put the bomb in the Terminator and then grab onto right. it and say some line. Yeah, like, or, or he'd have the bomb on himself and he, like, tackles the Terminator or something like mm -hmm. that. Yeah, yeah. And, like, the score, like, builds to that moment. Yeah. But nope, pretty unceremonious. Mm -hmm. uh, I like it, though. It it feels very true to kind of where this character is from, this war where people just die randomly, mm -hmm. and that his death is as random as anyone else's from his time. 
Um, what do you think of the ending where we see Sarah Connor like driving through Mexico? I guess. Yeah, or or, or what passes for Mexico in yeah. in northern Los Angeles with a with a fake backdrop. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I mean, if nothing else, I mean, it. The one thing that we haven't really talked about is, you know, all the time travel and timeline elements that have yeah. always been an issue. Yes. In, in, Why is that in Terminator films? Um, but I mean, obviously she, uh, she goes to the gas station, she gets the picture that was what Reese was looking at in the flash forward that we we're not quite sure if that was Reese's or (laughs) or hers. Um, but you know, so the question is, uh, well, if Reese had never come back, uh, would that picture, that picture would never have been taken. And if that picture had never been taken, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure somebody out there is, you know, at the Northern University of uh, Dogjaw has, uh, um, you know, written... <laughs> Dogjaw you? <laughs> yeah, written a, a master's that's thesis. What Earl, that's what Earl Bone is from. Master's thesis on this, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but the uh, they keep talking about a possible future in right. this one and in all of them. Yeah. Uh, but really, the future... Just keeps it keeps end up being the same. It's very true. Well, you know, I guess that's kind of the way it goes. The butterfly effect only goes so far in, in the Terminator world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I did think it's interesting. This movie ends with you know the kid saying like a storm is coming, and Sarah Connor being like you know I know. I know. Yeah, and then driving off, and you see the storm clouds rolling in. This movie was made with no intention of a sequel. Mm-hmm. Do you think? That if you showed this movie to an audience now, that they would walk away from it thinking it was a standalone. To me, it's it plays now like that is obviously a setup for a sequel. Yeah, I mean, if you played it to an audience now, they would probably wait around for the credits to end in the hopes that Samuel Jackson would appear. <laughs> right. Um, you know, it, it's yeah, certainly I agree with you. Yeah, it's interesting that. In 1984, this was, you know, considered like a satisfying ending to a, you know, really, really great sci-fi movie, sci-fi action movie. And yet now I look at it and I go, yeah, it makes sense why there's Terminator 2. Because there was Because there's money to be made. (laughs) Yeah, like, do you think this movie demands a sequel? Because we obviously got, you know, four and there's another one in development. Um, I mean, it doesn't demand it, but Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure that the studio execs demanded it when they saw how much money this product was worth (laughs) especially once all the people involved you know once schwarzenegger cranked out a few more big hits and cameron cranked out a few more big hits yeah uh you know doesn't demand one but it certainly certainly can handle one it's like any any movie with an ambiguous ending right i mean the sequel fits in nicely but i think it could have stood on its own just as well yeah i agree with that do you have any final moments you want to hit on or no, I mean, it, it is interesting, because of all the Schwarzenegger movies uh, we've done, I I mean, I'd have to check, but, you know, this is the movie where he's maybe in it the most, but saying the least. Right. And so it really is, in a lot of ways, uh, even though it is an iconic action film for him, mm-hmm. uh, a, a movie that's a lot different from a lot of the other movies that he's done. And, um, and it's... It was actually great. It was great to rewatch it. I hadn't seen it for probably a couple of years, and uh, yeah, it's a real treat. It's always a real treat. It's a it's a real great piece of film. Yeah, I agree. Like I think it's just an absolutely fantastic movie in Arnold's filmography. It's interesting rewatching it this time. I looked at it less as an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie than I think I did when I was younger. Yeah, yeah. In the sense that, like, I'm so invested in Sarah Connor and Kyle Reese's journey that that's what really swept me up this time. Like, Arnold's great. He's like the shark in Jaws. You know, you'll want to watch him every time he's on screen. But, you know, the story, like, of Chief Brody versus the shark, or, you know, the Chief Brody character. Lieutenant over... Dra- uh, oh, Draxler. <laughs> yeah, Draxler. <laughs> but, you know, uh... <laughs> that's what that's where Draxler went. He went to have his own spinoff as, like, a, in a Jaws movie. You know, he went on to win an Emmy in 94. <laughs> he did, yes. But, um... No, it's like, you know, the the normal human characters are sometimes overlooked when you're, you know, a little younger because you're looking at the snazzy stuff. Whereas now I'm so much more drawn into the Sarah Connor story mm-hmm. than than I was at that point. And, and Arnold Schwarzenegger does feel 
kind of like the shark in Jaws. He's awesome when he's on screen, but he's more of a distraction for the main characters than yeah. to me, like the spotlight is not on him as much. Whereas going forward, it would always be on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess similar to what you were saying about Cameron there. Uh, now, one thing we haven't done yet, yes. which we, we try and do every episode, sometimes we forget. Yes. Spot Sven. Yes. Now, were you able to see Sven Oli Thornton in this movie? There was a character you out loud said, is that Sven? And I looked at him and I was like, I don't know. I didn't think it was. Uh, it turns out it wasn't. I was, it, was <laughs> okay. just, it was just wishful thinking on my part. Yeah. Uh, Sven had appeared with him, obviously, in Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. This was a little early in Arnold's career. Sven Oli Thorson, Denmark's Strongest Man, 1983. Right. 10th Strongest Man in Europe, 1984. Partner with Grace Jones. Sven, God bless you, you weren't in this film. Where were you, buddy? Yeah, I guess Arnold Schwarzenegger just did not have the pull at this point to get his buddy into this movie. Oh, Columbo was there. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, why can he get Columbo but not Thornton? <laughs> yeah, he's... You know, probably just going to Cameron like, yeah, I got a big guy working out with him a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think he couldn't get Thorns in that role as the uh, the uh, infiltrator? I don't know. Maybe Thorns was busy doing what? I don't know. What like whatever these guys do. What does he do? I don't know. Eating protein. <laughs> <laughs> just at the buffet, <laughs> stuffing protein nuggets into his face. Right. Um. But uh, yeah, no, he sadly wasn't there. That's kind of a depressing uh note to end the in the show on well but i guess it is <laughs> i got nothing to add <laughs> but the terminator holds up great still fantastic yeah well, all these years. well maybe we should maybe we should leave it there cam yeah uh and i'm we'll looking talk at... more about this franchise in the future for sure so. yeah I'm, I'm sure we will and uh, probably comment back on this film as we go further down the road yeah, and, you know, I mean, we've got a lot more Arnold to cover here. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to jump forward a little bit next time. Yeah. Um, we are going to be doing The Expendables. Ooh. Which Arnold has a huge role in. A smaller role, but it, it was a little bit of a comeback pick for him. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, since we're going to cover all the Arnold movies, you know, when we do Expendables 2 and 3, there's a lot more to talk about because Arnold plays a much bigger role. But you got to touch on the first one to get to those two. And so we're going to revisit The Expendables for, I mean, this will be the second time I've ever seen it. I've only watched it once in theaters. I think, yeah, I think I've only seen it once. I've probably watched the um, five minutes that Arnold did it on YouTube. Sure. More than Five that. minutes? That seems generous. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> but, you know, it's a Schwarzenegger movie, and uh, if we just ignored those smaller parts, we'd run out of movies pretty quick. Exactly. No, it's going to be really interesting to revisit that franchise, because it's one that, at least in my mind, has lost a lot of its luster. But I'm curious to see if I can rediscover sort of my enjoyment of those movies. Yeah, well, hopefully we have uh, something to talk about. I mean, uh, I just don't know that much about Terry Crews. <laughs> well, start studying up. you got some time. <laughs> okay, so you can also find us elsewhere. I'm on Twitter at Cam V is in Verizon commercials starring Earl Bowen Smith. Tony, where can they find you? Uh, same place you can always find me, uh, Tony G. That's Tony, as in the name, and G, as in the letter, at arniegeddon.com. Awesome. You can also uh, catch up with us on our website, uh, arniegeddon.com, on Twitter, at arniegeddonpod, and you can download us wherever exceptional podcasts are kept. Of course. And tell your friends, of course, as well. Okay, so we'll be back with The Expendables. Expendables.